Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. For today's episode, I sat down with Isaac Nicholson. Isaac is a longtime friend and colleague of mine, and we've worked together for many years. In fact, Isaac was one of my early inspirations for diving into the sustainability career space in general. He's a leader and innovator in fashion and the textile space. Isaac and the company that he co-founded, Circular Systems, was recently recognized and awarded a grant from the H&M Foundation. It's called the Global Change Award. So I wanted to sit down with him to get an update on that. But additionally, in the episode, we talk about his long career and the brands that he's been able to build and work with, and here's some advice that he has for those that are interested in the space. A quick note, we sat down in a restaurant, so there's some background noise that you'll have to bear with, sorry. Uh, he's on a busy schedule, though, and he was getting ready to move his family to Portugal for the summer, so he's in the middle of, the, of a move, and we had to improvise a little. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Lots of links in the notes section. Be sure to check back, as always, if you, and leave any comments or uh, questions that you might have in the comment space. We've got lots more interviews like this coming, so stay tuned, but I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Underswell Podcast. News, stories, insights, product reviews, all to help you navigate the complexities of sustainability in your modern lifestyle. As I like to say, business can be done better, and in some cases it is. I'm Derek Sabori. I'm your host, and hey, it's just sustainability. Let's dive into today's episode. Real quick for our listeners, we're here at, uh, where are we at? Casa... Casa Escobar. Casa Escobar in Malibu. <laughs> so we're having some chips and salsa. We're having a little lunch. Um, might be a little bit of background noise, but Isaac, you're the, the CEO and co-founder of Circular Systems. You are the uh, founder of S3, or Sustainable Source Studios. And you and I have known each other for years. We've been able to work together for, for years. And um, you were a really big inspiration for me, you know, in my sustainability career and journey. Isaac was you know, sort of, actually, I think I think the first materials person that came to me while I was at Volcom, kind of talking about recycled and hemp and organic, and I just remember just having this, you know, you were definitely one of those people that gave me that my flashbulb moment where I just went like, just, jeez, why, how is this going on, and, and I have, I don't know about it, so I'm always, I'm always thankful um, to you for that, for, for leading the charge, so you've been leading this charge for, for many years. Well, thanks, man, I mean... Tremendous honor to hear that and and really validating and yeah I mean we go back over a decade yeah yeah and I think um, even back then if I take it all the way back then because I want to talk a little bit about how things have changed I mean a lot has has changed since then so you've done just kind of a, a list of things you did you did Livity um, Outer National it was called you were at House of Marley and then you formed um, I and I Outerwear brand and then your circular source studios and now you're working on circular systems but how has sort of the industry changed and what do you think is what do you recognize the most maybe what are you most proud of too thinking back to those earliest days well to take it all the way back um you know the way i came into fashion as an industry and textiles in general was actually through volcom in the early 90s uh in the very beginning of that brand i had the good fortune to meet a um, couple of the founders there yeah. and um, got to see kind of the back end of what was going on there, see what Neil Harrison was up to at the time and I was really inspired by the design and, and this idea that art could be product that you could wear and um, you know it, that really inspired me and a gang of friends to start um, one of the 
kind of cooler early snowboard outerwear companies called Soup Kitchen. That's right. Yeah, which had a, a social message to it even then, um, just inherent in the name even. But um, we were basically a bunch of hippie kids coming from Southern Oregon originally, and uh, we weren't seeing really what we needed in the world of outerwear at the time. It was either being designed by, you know, people from a totally different culture on the East Coast, because this is pre-internet, mm-hmm. is before our culture was really homogenized, yeah. and, uh, and, and or it was coming from the ski industry, and it was just totally off base stylistically, so we got into designing stuff, and it was totally through the, the inspiration of, of seeing the crew at Volcom, and, um, and that's really the business that, that got me going down this road, because we had you know some great success with it as a bunch of young 20 year olds um and uh it grew and uh we wound up moving up to portland and we were doing cut and sew with one of the pendleton factories up there great family um and uh one day we had just received a bunch of materials from japan a bunch of beautiful torrey nylon with you know state-of-the-art waterproof breathable lamination at the time this is all pre prop 64 65 pre-reach mm. so this stuff was nobody all, was asking questions oh back then, no man right? it was pvc based everything you yeah. know and uh i remember we went into the factory one day and they had been cutting and were preparing to start sewing and the fumes lingering from the cutting were so intense i felt like i couldn't really be in there for more than five minutes and i was really wondering in the back of my head like how how are these people going to be in here working all day yeah for days on end and uh, it gave me a pretty strong sense of, like, questioning my career, actually, what yeah. I was doing. Um, because, yeah, we were all the kids of environmental activists and social activists and had been given a consciousness that was a little bit elevated, I guess. And, you know, empathy for the people making this stuff is what got me questioning, like, wow, this is all toxic stuff from the oil industry and really pretty much um, what I was doing was diametrically opposed to my values and my, my upbringing and my lifestyle. So that, is, that was the catalyst. And, uh, and then I started to search for new materials, and this was around 1996. Okay. Um, and, and, and that yeah. was, um, shoot, I mean, that's when I started at Volcom. And so, yeah, right when you were t- being turned on, I was just getting my career going there. And it was sort of that same thing where you just uh, – sort of realize like wait this these things aren't aligned and you you realize you can go down one path of just chasing the progress and sort of accepting things as they are and just continuing to just chase the dream or kind of go hang on actually this doesn't this doesn't seem right this doesn't feel right it seems like you had that you had that decision tree to make yeah for sure i mean i um i've never been a business person who values money more than logic or you know humanity my own values and so you know for me it was totally about the expression of what we were doing you know the money was ancillary and maybe that's one of my downfalls historically but (laughs) um, it did give me the desire to go out and find something else and so you know coming from the culture we were coming from hemp was something we'd always heard about as an alternative fiber and started to search for that and for anything organic and uh, I was really fortunate to happen across a booth at the uh, 
was I think 1997 um, kind of vendor fair for Nike that they had just opened up to other brands because it had gotten so big up in Portland, Oregon. It was uh, the Northwest Footwear and Apparel Show, Footwear and Apparel Textile Show. And, uh, you know, this was the most toxic place in the universe at mm. that point. You know, the whole place reeked of volatile organic chemistry, yeah. right? It was just terrible. And, uh, I was cruising around though, and I came across this booth, Hemp Textiles International. Whoa, what's this? Saw my first organic cotton, saw my first organic linen, and the first blends of organic and, and hemp and recycled polyester, and it all looked like legit textiles. It didn't look like a, a burlap sack, right. which was what we understood hemp to be prior to that, you know? and. Or, or any kind of environmental textiles we thought of would be as these really hippie granola kind of things. And and this looked like high fashion stuff. Um, nothing technical at the time that we could apply to outerwear, um, but I'd already kind of shifted focus to trying to work on some casual street fashion because in that space I thought I could use natural fibers and start to break away from the synthetics. And... Uh, Wow, beautiful materials, but they were all like twelve to fifteen dollars a yard, right? right yeah, <laughs> so yeah. a bit priced out of the market, as it were. And uh, I still I took headers and fell in love with the stuff. And um, actually, you know, the guy behind that company is now one of my business partners. We've been trading for the last twenty years. Wow. Yeah, uh, but it was, um, you know, finally I got an opportunity about a year later in I guess it was uh, yeah late late 97 I started to do a lot of work in Italy in the years prior to that as soup kitchen wound down um, and uh, had been invited to do some pretty major projects with some big groups over there and of course the budgets in that realm were kind of sky's the limit and uh, I got to order all these fabrics and put them into a line and it was an incredible experience with with the materials and realizing how how great the product could be yeah and then wearing the stuff and recognizing some of the performance attributes so you saw the potential yeah the potential was so clear and uh, of course i came home from that experience you know with our our baby boy and moved moved actually that was when i came here to topanga originally okay um and uh tried to take it down to all my friends in orange county and bring it around the surf industry so when was that that would have been this was uh 98 yeah. Yeah. yeah this yeah, would have yeah. been fall of ninety eight. And uh so, you know, I was really passionate about it, but people saw me coming and they're like, Come on, hippie, you know, this organic <laughs> cotton, this hemp, like what are you thinking? Yeah. You know, and it, I, I think there was some people who really saw it and believed in it, you know. I think you were one of them and um and others as well, you know, Johnny from Element and Pierre from Soltech. Yeah in those early days that you know but to use it was like pretty priced out it was, it was not easy and even you know cut out the hemp and just use organic cotton such a specialty niche fiber then and even now unfortunately yeah. was more expensive so I really got a lot of doors closed in my face for those first few years and it wound up driving me to start my own brand to show everybody in the industry that it was feasible that it didn't have to be granola, it didn't have to be too expensive, uh, it could be, you know, everything that, that is needed in the world and be responsible. And, um, 
and so that that's how Livity got started. So have you ever, because so far it's been about working for, having your own brand, having your own company. Yeah. When you went to Italy, was that working for somebody else? Were that you still was, on your own? Yeah, no, that was freelancing for different design houses have, over there. Have you ever had, have you ever worked for the man? Um, not directly. <laughs> not <the fog> <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I'm averse to that. Yeah, no yeah, kidding. I've got to do it my way. Um, or not my way, but I've got to do it the way that... Uh, on, on your own terms. Yeah, you know, and sort of what nature dictates is right. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about Liberty Outer International then. How long did that go for? Liberty, I started that in fall of 2001. And that was, that was an interesting sort of inspiration to that because I was in a meeting with uh, one of the founders of LRG trying to convince him to change this PVC faux leather on the edge of this cap that I had helped design, which was kind of their iconic piece at, at the time. It was this straw ball cap. Okay. And, uh, and I was like, just let's use some real leather, man. You know, if, if you know, like, just get away from this PVC. Yeah. He's like, dude, if you believe in this stuff so much, you know, saving the planet, he's like, just, you should start your own brand. You know, why don't you just, I was like, oh, there's you know, not a bad idea. Yeah, the light bulb went off. I'd done that before, and it actually felt like the right time. I had more resources than ever to do it. And uh, so I went home and architected a brand that wasn't just um, geared around better materials, but the whole architecture of the, the messaging and the, uh, you know, the brand name itself was all geared toward this um, different modality where we were communicating something um, fundamentally important, you know, liberty uh, means it's like a combination of lifestyle and freedom, sort of intrinsically connected, right? And outer national is this way of looking at the world without political borders, you know, just as the beautiful diversity that it is. And then we tried to plug all the messaging into the products to, to give this empowerment in this kind of kinesthetic way. You know, so every hat had wisdom, knowledge, and understanding written all over the seam tape, and that's driving into your your being. You know, yeah. Um, so it was beyond just the materials, but really the messaging as well. And uh, but the materials were the driver of it, and it was really focused on using organics and hemp as the the drivers of the whole brand. Yeah, I had some of your goods. I mean, you had you had beautiful fabrics back then. You know, you had a great line, and there was a lot of great products in there. You know, that were. Yeah, it was a you, you beautiful the run. Case, you know, you yeah. the case. How, how long did that? How long did that run last? Uh, that went about ten years until um, I got kind of caught up in the economic downturn and trying to grow too fast through that, yeah. and made some bad decisions. But really, got great lessons through it. And you know, the beautiful thing is, what it was started for was to inspire all you guys down in the surf industry. And it absolutely succeeded in that respect because by the time 2004 and the inconvenient truth came out finally all my buddies in surf skate industry started to call up and say hey you said, remember that organic stuff you were showing me like you know what's up with that yeah and uh was that movie i mean that was a true that was my official catalyst you know so while having influencers come around and kind of show like you did that it can be done different and, and present sort of different opportunities watching that movie for me, at Volcom, we did this lunch and learn. We played the movie. I left. I'll never forget it. I left that very break room, just going, "That's it. I'm in. Count me in." Like, well, this is this is what I will be doing from now on. You know, no matter what I do, I will be driving towards just being better and doing better and being a part of something that leaves a lasting, positive change as opposed to a negative, you know, impact. 
on our world for my kids. I mean, my kids were young at that time. That's right. I mean, that that movie was really a wake-up call and heard by a lot of people. Maybe yeah. not enough initially, but um, and it's the wake-up is still happening. <laughs> um, but that definitely was a catalyst. Um, and, and so started to then have the chance to plug some of these great materials into some of my favorite brands and really got to see that take root and, and become something. And we, we saw it really escalate up to around uh, 2007. And, and it was like peaking and about to become a real movement. And, uh, and then the economic downturn hit and everybody cut all those programs that were that were set up to roll in the subsequent year. Everybody got scared. Yeah, so fall 2008 really kind of neutered that first wave of the environmental fashion movement. I really saw it firsthand. Um, But we persisted. And... uh, and Keyword keyword here, students and young professionals. (laughs) Persistence. Persistence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't let any circumstances stop you from achieving those goals that are bigger than yourself or money you know we got to do it and uh anyway so you know the economic downturn and the eventual kind of destruction of the liberty brand through that um which was so painful having built it myself for for many years and achieved some great success with it at the end of the day it was a huge opening to do bigger work and to kind of go deeper into the supply chain and begin to affect change at bigger companies and with with sort of bigger vehicles for messaging and so had a you know a great run a huge honor to work with the marley family and kind of be their conduit to some big licensees and and really try to set up product programs that were in line with bob's ethos Mm -hmm. which for me really hit home and and was a very special project and a really special period of my life um and you know, we got to affect some change there, but ultimately the incongruence of these money-hungry investors uh, that had licensed Bob's legacy mm. and the family's desire to see it done right, it was, it was too much for me. I, I couldn't, couldn't pull it off because these guys wouldn't do it right. Really? Yeah, really tough. And I, I think that the family's done well in, in really maintaining their position and keeping the products as high integrity as possible despite all of that. But... I had to move on to where I could impact things a little deeper yeah. and uh, had the chance, you know, through that project to start Sustainable Source Studios, uh, which was really the agency that I, I formed post Liberty to do this consulting work and these design projects. And uh, that wound up opening me up to a lot of other experiences in the industry, being able to provide materials or strategic consulting on sustainability and ultimately wound up bringing me into a position where I was actually branding the ingredients, the materials themselves, and mm. bringing them upstream to the market. And that really culminated with Recover uh, over the last four or five years, uh, working with this beautiful family over in Spain, the Ferre family, and Hilaturas Ferre, um, really the world's foremost recycled cotton yarn spinner, um, making the lowest impact uh, textile fiber in the known universe at this time yeah. recover if you check it out on the MSI it's the only textile fiber that gets a one and that's because of the way it's recycled using solar energy etc yeah. but also because of the preservation of the embedded energy 
through using the dye stuffs um, into the second life cycle. Um, that means combining the colors of the waste to match Pantones. You know it really well. Yeah, you're yeah, using we're using it, it all in, uh, in Cosm. Cosm's line almost, I mean, what, 90% of our products are made with uh, Recover fibers. And yeah, it's an awesome, it's an awesome uh, product. And it's, uh, it's been great for us. Well, um, and real quick, you mentioned the MSI. I mean, that's the Material Sustainability Index, right, that Nike developed. And I think um, the SAC has taken over. But it's a scoring, basically a scoring system for fibers and materials and yeah. mostly, mostly fibers to tell you which fibers are the best, which ones have the best score and, and the, the worst yeah. score. Is that right? And with it, you can actually build up materials and, and check your score of what a blend of, mm-hmm. you know, recycled cotton and RPET would look like, Yeah. for example. It's a really complex tool in some ways, but a really important measurement of product sustainability and... Uh, uh, yeah, incredible investment by Nike went into that, and yeah. SAC's been stewarding it really well. Yeah, really um, cool tool. Yeah, absolutely important to check out all you young designers out there. Isaac, how um, so? How have things changed? I mean, if we kind of fast forward to today, and I want to get to. I mean, you guys were just recognized for the work you're doing with a really great, you know, award, really solid achievement. So congratulations on that. That was kind of what I meant to open up with was congratulations, and oh, thanks, that kind man. of sparked me to get here <laughs> here with you. Yeah. But um, how have you seen things change then? I mean, you just walked us through those earlier years, and you've been persistent. Um, you've since worked with some really big brands now in the space, and. I like the fact too that you know you started off in sort of action sports and you know and, and snowboarding and have gone on to work with much bigger fashion brands and and um, you know sort of world famous brands now. But is the mood and and people's and designers' willingness to accept sustainability is it different now? Uh, a hundred percent. I yeah. can say after this last week at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit that we're we're either nearing the tipping point or, or we're actually reaching it right now as yeah, we speak. Yeah, I saw your, um, you did a cool um, LinkedIn um, blog post that kind of talks about that, right? I mean, you, you were excited about that. You, I, yeah, it was very palpable. I mean, at the, at the event, um, which for the last couple of years has gotten more and more important and, and more and more effective in the way they've organized it kind of around this Boston Consulting Group report, The Pulse of the Fashion Industry. Mm-hmm which was organized by some of the, the mega labels and uh, the Danish Fashion Institute and the Global Fashion Agenda. I mean, there's some really smart people out there working on this stuff. And, and the study of the industry um, for this Pulse report um, that came out last year was pretty remarkable. At first, I was kind of upset because it wasn't more environmental impact oriented. It was very financial. Okay. But then I realized that this is the ultimate tool it's breaking it down of course the impacts are all there but it's talking about the the economic impacts on the industry being really severe if we don't move toward resource efficiency so last year they came out and they said the case for change is indisputable because if we don't go toward circularity and this real resource efficiency the industry is going to see a net loss of EBITDA in the range of three to four percent mm. by 2030. It means that means the whole industry is going off a cliff, essentially. Yeah, there yeah. is no growth. And why why do they say that? Is that just because of natural resource availability? Yeah, or? it's a combo of resource scarcity and regulatory pressure, and just really the the changing of everything right now. Um, we're we're finally at, at a point where our impacts are so severe. You know, we can't really grow more cotton than we're already growing. We can't really 
keep producing the amount of synthetic virgin materials that we're producing yeah. um, or it will literally take us out as a species. Right. Yeah. And, and so that's a fun thought. Yeah. It's a, a that's <laughs> a real one. And, and that's the other end of this. It's not just economic. We're talking about our very survival mm. at the end of the day. You know, what does it mean when we say we're using two to three Earths of resources annually here in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, what that means is if the whole world was doing that, we would already be extinct. Right. And that's a hard one to swallow. It's a hard one to even fathom, you know. Um, but that's real. And, and so, you know, wake up in the morning and think about that if you want some motivation to go and create change and yeah. be an activist with your art. Um, that's really a, a big one. So... The, the Pulse reports, um, Copenhagen Fashion Summit as a rallying point for the industry. Last year, we really felt it kind of kick off a new importance and validate that economically. And this year, they drove it all the way home by showing the upside that could be created by doing this effectively. And uh, essentially, you know, Sebastian from Boston Consulting Group called it a no-brainer. Uh, at this point, like if you're not doing it, you're being irresponsible to your company, much less your children and all future generations of all species. Yeah. Um, but it's now this year they've come out and found that the upside would be this additional, you know, three to seven percent, something like that of, of profit if we can achieve this resource efficiency. And uh, that makes the case for change truly indisputable. Um, not only is our choice is either go off the cliff as an industry and as a species or make more money through this efficiency and survive. What's the choice? I mean, come it's on. binary. It's, yeah. easy. it's, it's an easy pretty choice. easy choice. <laughs> so now we're seeing the action really taking place. And, and what I'm seeing is like a literal space race for new fashion technologies. And uh, the big brands in the world are, are not just racing one another, but collaborating with one another to propel these really important new technologies and new concepts for manufacturing and that's wonderful to see after so many years in the space and wondering if it would ever happen um, it's happening it's really happening uh, a friend of mine you know turned around during the event when during one of these presentations and was like she's been in as long as us you know like Marcy Zaroff who you know mm-hmm, yeah great person to Google uh, she turned around she's like isn't this surreal it's finally happening. Yeah, it's no longer sort of a, a niche thing off in the corner in a little club. I mean, we used to have the eco zone, or you had, you know, little break-off sections. You know, now it's like, now we're the, this is the main event. Yeah, this is where it's headed. Well, and I think this is a great transition. Well, tra- I'd like to now transition even to kind of how you, what role you guys play. Maybe tell us then about what Circular Systems is now, what you guys are doing, and, and really kind of highlight this. You guys were just awarded by the H&M Foundation, the Global Change Award. So you were a Global Change Award winner. That's a big prestige, a big honor. Maybe tell us about the award and tell us about what you guys are doing to, to, have, to have won that award. Yeah, wow. Yeah, talk about an honor. That, that was bigger than we even understood going into it, actually, and such a huge validation after you know me and my two co-founders really having slogged uphill in this battle for so long um just this tremendous support and who is your co-founder the same one that you met those years ago yeah so so my partners are yitzhak goldstein our cto 
who's one of the real innovators behind the scenes in environmental textile work going back almost 25 years. Mm. Um, he is a sustainable ag student originally. He went to China to study traditional ag methods there and fell in love with fiber and, you know, specifically with hemp cultivation and, um, you know, went deep into every aspect of that um, and, and ultimately became uh, really one of the most important innovators um, in terms of being the first to blend things like recycled polyester and recycled cotton um, or, you know, organic cotton and hemp for that matter into the finer yarns and really making cool textiles out yeah. of it. Um, really cool stuff. So, yeah, Yitzhak, what a brilliant innovator. And then Jeff Keim, uh, our COO, who's the guy responsible um, for actually ending hemp prohibition in North America. He and his father helped get uh, hemp legalized in Canada back in 96. Oh, wow. Had run the first sort of test plots and the first scaled industrial agriculture post-prohibition. Um, and then eventually he ran a, a lab that turned into a pilot facility that was all about perfecting the art of dry processing and decortication and then you know all of the early development of of biocomposites and things like hempcrete and all the applications yeah. as well so you know the three of us all represent different aspects of innovation in mm -hmm. the space i'm more on the design and marketing end of it um a brand guy yep um and we're really you know, I think founders who fit together really well um, in this kind of an organization were uniquely skilled and, and probably more experienced as a team than any other group yeah. in the space. Yeah, able to leverage each other's strengths. And you guys, you have three three sections to your company, basically, right? Or three technologies that you guys are selling yeah. right now? Yeah, so Circular Systems, um, and, and the reason we we got the Global Change Award was really focused in on our AgriLoop technology which is a closed-loop biorefinery for processing food crop waste into cottonized textile fiber. So such as? So taking, uh, whether it be banana, pineapple, sugarcane, or in the northern latitudes, things like oilseed flax or oilseed hemp, okay. or even now, you know, CBD and medical recreational cannabis, mm -hmm. um, using the leftovers from that, all that biomass. Scraps. Yeah, with all that embedded energy, and uh, in a system that requires no external chemistry and no external energy, processing it into really high-value textile fiber. So is it a chemical process, though, or is it a mechanical process? It's both. Um, it always starts out with mechanical mm -hmm. to do that initial decortication and fiber separation, but it's a, it's a biochemical process, ultimately. Wow. Um, and it's, it's levering chemistry that we extract from the plants, energy that's also plant-based. Oh, wow. And um, that's, you know, really a big part of why we got the award. But the other aspect is that we've really designed a, a social factor into it through the way we intend to spread this system globally, which mm. is that community-based decentralized model. So not creating the old school mega mill that you bring all the waste to that is wholly owned and controlled by your corporation, but actually going out and partnering with communities and public-private sector to put these mini mills in place that are owned and operated by the communities. Oh, wow. And then, my, my little micro businesses? Well, yeah, or bigger than micro, but, um, you know, really enabling the communities 
to turn what right now is a true waste stream and in most cases means it's a liability to the community into tremendous value. And on top of that, deliver back surplus bioenergy and this surplus biochemistry in the form of perfect organic soil amendments um, to feed the fertility cycle. So it's it's really comprehensive. Um, and, you know, the idea on the social end is that if we can help farmers earn more revenue from what's a liability right now and also enable them to get better yields through this return of, of uh, perfect organic fertilizer and soil amendments, we're really helping propel, you know, kind of a snowball effect of improvement in some of the most disadvantaged places on earth. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah, so that's so, the AgriLoop. And essentially then AgriLoop is I mean, taking crop waste and turning it into fine, into fibers that can be spun into fine yarns. Yeah, they can go right into conventional spinning systems. And this isn't awesome. viscose. This isn't like taking it all the way down to dissolving pulp and okay. extruding a man-made cellulosic. This is really creating the ultimately purified natural fiber. Right. Yeah. And then so we have two other technology platforms that are a little further along, okay. actually. Um, we have the text loop, which is the recycling of textiles through advanced mechanical and extrusion processes. Um, so basically the clothing we wear once we turn, yeah. it, turn it back in somewhere. Yep. And so advancing those technologies using the state-of-the-art equipment and partnering with the best in class like Recover and really setting up big programs to recycle people's uh, whether it be post-industrial or pre-consumer waste, all the dead stock left on the shelves everywhere, all the web returns, mm. insane. I mean, millions yeah. of units in all these big brands, warehouses right now that Nobody are just Nobody really likes festering. to talk about returns huh. or, or even just products that are no longer saleable. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge one. And, uh, and then, of course, post-consumer, which is the biggest, most complex thing to unlock. But we've got some really great technology to help do that. And uh, so with TechSloop, we're actively marketing also like the traditional recycled polyester made from post-consumer packaging as one of our first products. And then blending that with um, recycled polyester from garment waste Mm. to make really high-value staple fiber. And uh, so that's that's off and running. We've got an amazing new project kicking off in China to recycle some of Outer Known's cutting waste Kelly Slater's uh, brand yeah and then of course Patagonia is actually in the same factory Uh, so we're working with those two real environmental champions um, and helping take their post-industrial waste over there it's looking like about 200 metric tons this year that will be recycling as a a starting pilot Wow! so we've created a joint venture in China again with a regional partner there and uh, helping kind of optimize how that gets done and converting waste into value. Amazing. That's the text loop. And so a big part of what we're doing with the fibers that we're extracting in text loop, it's essentially, um, you know, there's a lot of challenges in mechanical recycling of textiles. And it's perceived almost as downcycling by most people who, who don't know better. And that's because historically the yarns and the fabrics have some inherent quality issues. So downcycling is making it even lower quality, taking something that had a higher quality and turning it into something less quality. Yeah, it's a form of recycling, and it's important even to downcycle things, you know, but it would be like, you know, making carpet padding or insulation from beautiful jeans rather than making jeans again. Right, right. Or making a substandard fabric for textiles when it came from something really good. That could be downcycling too, but 
you know, unless you're recover, the rest of the world of recycled cotton out there is just plagued with, you know, yarn breaking strength and contamination and, you know, pilling, things like this that prevent it from really getting the mass market uptake that it needs to have. But we've developed a new spinning technology called Orbital. And Orbital is uh, basically bucking all the preconceived notions of what recycled textiles can do. And without the need for these, you know, chemical recycling fantasies that are running around right now getting so much love where people are very fixated on, you know, purity and perfection. We really don't know if those things will be cost effective. We don't know if it's going to require more energy going in than we actually get out in the form of textiles at the end. You know, this is all yet to be seen. And so, I mean, we're kind of tapping here into this idea of the circular economy. Yeah. Everybody is sort of waiting for this to happen. We're sort of... I mean, everybody, it's a race, right? yeah. it's kind of an arms race to figure out, hey, who will have the solution for taking the clothes that we wear or the excess inventory and turning it right back into good new wearable products again. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. So we're, we're really here to enable the circular economy in the textile space. Nice. And we like to look at it kind of more as a space race and an arms race, you know, where <laughs> instead of the goal being to reach the moon first, the goal is for the whole world to attain sustainability. That means survival of yeah. our species. Yeah. And not just survival, but actually thriving. Like, we're working beyond this concept of circularity or zero waste actually going for regenerative systems design. That's what the AgriLoop really represents. Mm. And when we put these mechanically recycled fibers into, into materials that actually perform better than virgin with Orbital, that's also this taking this next step of actually we're making higher performing fabrics than, than have been made traditionally with virgin fiber inputs using some of the lowest value even blended textile waste that's been mechanically recycled so good so it's another really great breakthrough and you know all of this coming from the absolutely remarkable brain of our cto and stuff that we've been working on together for years now um so it's uh it's a moment where we're getting a lot of support and um you can see now that the industry is really running this direction and that's why i say i think that we're we're reaching the tipping point if it hasn't already happened as of last week in Copenhagen. How did it feel 20 years into this or so to get that award and get that recognition? I mean, it's hard to even describe. Uh, we, we were flown over to Stockholm to receive the award in the same hall that they give out the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. And the, the way the whole event was produced, I mean, it was so world-class and so incredible. We didn't realize what we were walking into and, and to be the stars of the show and celebrated there after all these years of hard work was it was beyond validation and 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 beyond even being a massive honor it was just like finally i think it's happening (laughs) you know yeah Yeah. and so now we've got the hard work of really executing on that and and getting these systems replicated and deployed around the world that's when when do you hope that these when when do consumers see these these things well, you'll start to see things from TextLoop and Orbital in the market, you know, as early as uh, early next year in some awesome. front-runner brands. Um, the bigger mass-market brands, the, the ones that move quick in this realm we call fast fashion, mm-hmm. they'll be coming out with some of that stuff as well. Um, but we'll really see the highest level expression with the AgriLoop biofibers coming out in big-scaled programs probably, you know, around 2020. Cool. Um, that's that's our goal. and. Uh, at that point, it's going to be really about scaling it as quickly as possible, and we think that the support is beyond there at this point. Yeah, Isaac, you mentioned um, fast fashion, and I know—I mean, 
what's your take? How are they? How are they doing in the sustainability world? How are these brands doing? Because I know they, you know, fast fashion gets a really bad rap, but I know some of the brands are, are making big strides and have big commitments. What's your um, What's your take? Wow. In fact, it's really now stacking up, and and uh, it's it's not going to succeed much longer in its current form. This is part of this whole forecast that was delivered in the Pulse report. It's like we have to not only produce more efficiently but we need to produce you know i think more realistically in terms of what demand should look like and mm. not be forcing it down the consumer's throat every week because we want to have quarterly profits above all logic and reason yeah you know um and that that's what's going to be talked about next really in this movement the social and the financial models that are so negatively charged behind this whole system but fast fashion on the whole and people might find this ironic but if you look at the three biggest players on earth even four biggest players um you know h&m inditex group cna uniqlo these guys are actually years ahead of the rest of the market wow yeah why do you think that is well because they're so big that their systems um you know, they, they've had the intel, first of all, longer than other organizations, right? Um, I think, you know, big, huge mega brands like, like Adidas and Nike are also way out in front because they've had this intel and really smart people on their teams to recognize that this resource scarcity is looming. Yeah, We're real, not going to be able to get real. all the cotton we want every season at a cheap rate much longer. And regulatory pressure will probably prevent us from buying polyester the way we do right now as well. Mm you know, once it's figured out how impactful that really is. Yeah. And uh, so these guys have found that out now years back, and that's just becoming common knowledge in the, the medium-sized companies, you know, the companies that are just $500 million to a billion dollars, let's say, yeah. are just now discovering that for the most part. Um, but the, the irony really is that fast fashion is helping kick off and drive this movement more than any other sector yeah it's really interesting and i think maybe a little bit of a misconception by people too you know i know i, I always kind of talk to my students about them and remind them that hey some of these big brands that you may kind of scowl at for not doing the right thing are actually the ones that are driving some of the biggest change they have to i mean it's it's beyond just a measure of responsibility to their own children it's actually that um, the, their business models won't survive unless yeah, they can achieve this. Yeah, and now it's totally been quantified, and the the race is heated up. And and actually, what's been stated is that everybody has to cooperate and collaborate if we really want to achieve this. And that's a beautiful thing. Now we're starting to see this new era of what we call coopetition. Yeah, it's a really essential concept where. If we're talking about pre-competitive fibers and yarns and things, you know, everybody uses the same stuff now, and it's exactly. how you design with it and market it that makes you win. Yep. Um, so if we can propel the space to have truly better, not just lower impact, but regenerative resources become the most important thing in the market and the scale behind these huge brands propelling that, um, that's, the way, that's the way the human race is going to win ultimately and we all win yeah together yep Isaac I want to wrap up with a couple of things here I've got some questions for you maybe just to kind of sum things up because uh, obviously we can't fit it all into uh, into one segment here but you know what is it I'm gonna kind of do a little round of rapid-fire questions here to finish sure. up with what did it take what do you think it takes to get to where you're at and to achieve what you did oh I mean beyond beyond persistence and dedication I think you have to really live and breathe um, 
the passion for this and and it really is it's beyond like a personal gain have passion has and to drive it yeah. yeah passion and persistence and looking beyond yourself and and really trying to do it for the world biggest changes you've seen since you started Wow, just going from zero interest in these materials and concepts to now the entire industry racing for this. Yeah. Uh, it couldn't be more different now than it was even five years ago. Yeah. You know? So good. Yeah. What an exciting time to be a part of it. Um, what brand might surprise listeners in, in terms of sustainability? What, what brand might listeners not know about that is actually doing something really significant in the sustainability space? I mean, you, you mentioned may, a few already. But yeah, you, me, uh, you may not know it, but you know, Nike, um, as big a beast as they are, has been using more organic cotton than any single brand going back to the '90s. You know, just as one point. Yeah. Um, and in terms of banning things like nano silver finishes, that happened more than five years ago for them. While. Lululemon and others are still putting that on the yoga gear that people still are working out. Still scratching trying to figure out like what? Yeah, well, we absorb, you know, subatomic heavy metals into our bodies. <laughs> you know, so yeah, Ni Nike's impressive. Okay. Um, and they don't talk about it a lot. And they're, I think they're just now gearing up to actually talk about it. Which I hope they yeah. do. Yeah, they, they need know. to. Yep. Um, something that you love that you would like to be made more sustainably. Hmm. Something that you appreciate in your life or use in your life that you wish was made more sustainably. Wow. Surfboards and wetsuits. Surfboard, yeah, wetsuits. I feel yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of good you know, good things happening in the surfboard space. Patagonia yeah. with their, Ulex, their, their yeah. natural rubber wetsuit. Yeah. But um, I agree. Yeah. Um, advice to, to students and young professionals who want to get into sustainability. I would say to be hungry for knowledge and study on your own and don't wait for a teacher to bring it to you um, there's so much available information out there and uh, you just got to seek it out um, you know things like checking out the material sustainability index or going to the Copenhagen Fashion Summit website and downloading these Boston Consulting Group reports I mean it's a lot of very heady information but if you can really dive into that and understand what's there, you're going to have a tremendous advantage in your search for, you know, whether it be success or attaining impact in the space. Yeah. Um, that's Just stay informed. Stay get, informed. Get informed. Get, get informed. informed. Yeah, seek knowledge. Um, how about this one? Current playlist, whether it's a book, music, a movie, podcast that you're listening to, something. What's sort of on your, your playlist that you would uh, that you'd share with us oh, that, man. that helps fuel you? On the music front, I've been listening to a lot of like Afro beats like Malik Berry and Mr. Easy. It's really fun stuff, kind of spinning off of dance hall with a lot of African influence. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, and on, on the books, I mean, I'm constantly devouring books on planes whenever I can. And um, there's a great one out um, that is kind of a reread just to keep around all the time. Um, which is the art of stopping time? Ooh, I haven't read it. By the urban monk, whose name is going to escape me right now. But the yeah, art of stopping time. The art of stopping time. Yeah. It's if a, it's on Audible, then I'll do it. You'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's some other really important ones out there too. I mean, the ecology of commerce. Yep. Yeah. Um, Paul Hawken. Yeah, exactly. All Paul Hawken stuff, and of course, read Cradle to Cradle, the Bible of sustainability. Yeah. You know, I'll uh, open that up every. Yeah couple of months or years just to be reminded of 
Yeah, just to seek out certain quotes because, I mean, really, like Bill McDonough, those guys, they're, they're not only are they brilliant uh, in concepting the ethos and, and the um, practices of sustainability, but they're such wordsmiths. Yeah, um, oh, all, so, yeah, so yeah, smart. Yeah, all the words that we use in this movement having been crafted by these guys so eloquently, you know, and, and I really love this idea of, you know, we need to stop trying to do less bad and yeah. start doing more, more good. good. Yeah. yeah. And, and stop looking at things as waste. And yet, like you're doing, those things are valuable nutrients. They're resources. Put them back into work. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, a little example of that, the, the waste to resource concept is really typified in the AgriLoop. So when we look at, at crop residues as waste, they're huge climate liability because we're either burning them and creating all this carbon monoxide and CO2. Yeah or we're allowing them to rot in the tropics, and that creates tons of methane, which is even 30 times more impactful to the ozone than CO2. Mm. If you switch your viewpoint on these forms of biomass that are rotting or burning, and look at it as an input value and resource, it becomes incredibly important for these communities. It goes from being a threat to our survival to being an economic boom yeah, I love it. You know, and that's that's the difference right there. Um, my last question for you: What uh, best thing that us consumers can do? What do listeners do just to be a, be a part of this and help make change? As somebody who's not in the space or, you know, feeling maybe helpless or um, complacent, what's the best thing any of us can do? I think first and foremost, stay truly optimistic and again it's totally about awareness so to seek and share knowledge and to do it in a way where it's not preaching to people but genuinely sharing something good and important um, those those are some of the most important things we could do I mean I could say turn off your faucet and save water and <laughs> reuse they, your bags yeah but it's really it's more fundamentally we need to really um, be conduits for this message that is like hey man you know did you hear about this like, you know, we could really make a dramatic shift in our world just by looking for better clothing when we go out and shop. Or how about just buying vintage instead? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are, it's just sharing knowledge, man. It's it's one of the that's fundamental tenets yeah, of sustainability. Knowledge. That's a good one. I yeah, like that. That's what we're doing here today. That's what you're doing that's with it. your podcast. That's it. Thank I you so get much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I just want to get your word out there and have people, I'll put all the links in the, in the show notes so they can go see what you are up to. Um, all the um, the solutions that you're providing and maybe some of these um, tips that you uh, recommended and resources that you recommended. But, Isaac, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Derek. And I wish you guys uh, all the best of luck um, in what you're doing and hope that we can continue to work together. We absolutely will, man. Let's do this. We've got decades more to go. Right on. Okay, Isaac. Thanks, man. For more stories like this or to learn more about the host, visit theunderswell.com.